0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Welcome. And thank you for coming on this beautiful day to be here together this morning. Um, For those of you who are here for the first time, our guiding teacher, Mark Namberg, and many others from Common Ground away uh, on retreat. So I'm uh, sometime uh, Ramdas used to refer to himself as a rent-a-mouth, <laughs> um, and I shouldn't compare myself with Ramdas because I'm not, I'm not uh, hardly hardly. Um, wise and a good speaker as Ram does. But I tend to cover the holidays. How many of you were here when I gave a talk last May? Okay. Um I realize I talk my walk. Not other way around. <laughs> so, uh, three months ago, I gave a Sunday Dharma talk, um, just like this, about the insights I gleaned from my experiment of living as if I have six months to live. I began that experiment six months after my beloved partner died. And in that talk, I didn't finish my whole list of insights. So for today, I thought, I just thought, that I would do a part two of that talk. And so in my mind, I began preparing for the part two, you know, first by reviewing the last talk um, and moving on to finish my list. I mean, and I made an effort. I tried really, really hard, many times. But there wasn't enough juice to push me through. So, wow. Or oh, maybe I'm in a different place than three months ago. You know, when insights from being so intimate with death and dying were fresh and immediate. And if things are different, What's different? What path am I walking these days? I've asked. And my mind went blank. No spiritual insights flashed. Nothing I could name anyway. And I was a little alarmed. Oh my Buddha! I'm not being spiritual! Oh, I'm not worthy of being asked to give this Dharma talk. What am I going to do? Or am I? So observing my little panic, I slowed down. Because, you know, panic wants you to speed up, breathe faster, heartbeat faster. Your mind, monkey mind runs around faster. So I breathed deeply and settled in my seat and listened. I leaned in to find out the truth of what is beneath that reactive, judgmental voice. So in the last past May, I was coming out of the 18 months of pretty focused investigation and practice with death and dying. It was an intense time of waking up to the truth of not only viscerally felt impermanence and suffering but also unbounded, mysterious, ever-present love. It was a difficult but hugely transformative time, so in my initial asking of where I was la- where I was at, I must have looked for that, you know, similar quality of intensity, luminous transformation in my current life and I couldn't find that. The feeling I had last year was like being constantly on the edge of a sharp cliff and at the same time having fallen and realizing that there's no bottom. There's no bottom to hit. I was floating in a timeless space at the seam of living and dying. And I'm not there these days, I realized. I feel the solid earth beneath, beneath my feet, and it seems my gait is kind of halting, clumsy, as if I'm learning to walk again. No fireworks, no space walk, no walking on water, just one foot in front of the other, on the ground, nevertheless. How do I call this walk, this part of my path? Not finding the intensity of brilliant transformative quality At first I made a common mistake of thinking what a spiritual path is supposed to look like, and I caught my mistake, and so I slowed down. I told myself, don't look back to May. don't seek too far ahead, look down at my feet and see what's found there, be curious with some tenderness for my vulnerable walk. I love this saying by Bobby McFerrin, the vocalist and conductor, who said, relax into what's not supposed to be happening. When what's not supposed to happen, relax into it. No wonder he could write, don't worry, be happy. And when you relax into what's not supposed to happen, then you actually relax into what is. It sounds so simple, but sometimes it's so hard. Relax into what is truly happening right now. You lean in to what is right now with tenderness, and curiosity. Beneath the turbulence of reactivity and judgment, a small confidence was reached. I trusted that there's integrity in my commitment to awaken my heart, that even though I could not name what it was I was walking at that time, it was still part of my path. Maybe I'm going through a quieter, subtler, ordinary looking, just looking passage. A wise woman said when she's on a detour, she tries to pay attention to the scenery. Then it's no longer a detour. You see that it is an integral part of our journey. So I settled down into self-inquiry with curiosity, instead of judgment, and tenderness instead of gritted teeth. A path is made known with tenderness and patience. Through the inquiry I discovered that a pervasive quality of this part of my path has been that of patience. Well, it's not so sexy at all to be patient. It's <laughs> not a sexy topic. Um, in this age of instant messages and quick Google searches to find answers to everything, who wants to hear about patience, right? Who wants to know how we can get to a place well, everybody, we want to know how we can get to a place quickest, easiest, and most efficient. And who wants to hear about detours and slowdowns, right? And how many of us were frustrated and annoyed by the road construction this summer and wish for it to be over, especially when we are in a hurry? <laughs> we just want something unpleasant or irritating or difficult to just go away, to be over with. But you know that tendency is part of our biology. It's not to be rejected or dismissed. We need to have a right understanding about this tendency, the impulse to want to push away that which is unpleasant is wired in us to a reptilian brain, the brain that is always on the lookout for survival. You know, it's the part that goes, um, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Or can I mate with it? (laughs) (laughs) That part of the brain has the quickest reaction time, instantly it makes us run away, get in the fighting mode, or freeze and pretend to be dead. But because of these responses, this part of the brain saved us from extinction. You know, we would not be here today if it wasn't for that basic survival instinct. And Buddha had that same wiring too. Don't think it was easy for the Buddha when Mara came to defeat him, as he sat under the Bodhi tree. Mara's ultimate challenge to the Buddha was his right to enlightenment, to become free and transcend his fears, to not be defeated by Mara. And the Buddha asked the earth to bear witness for his rightful place to awaken, Just as Gautama Siddhartha became enlightened and became the Buddha, the capacity for that luminous spaciousness and freedom, that too is also inherent in us. We are more than our reptilian brain, and we are more than our prefrontal cortex that helps us to slow down the reactivity and to access more skillful perspectives. Patience is a bridge that connects us from reptilian brain through the mammalian brain to the prefrontal cortex and towards equanimity of heart. Heart that which is not bound by the parts of the brain, our physiology. We are more than our body. In the 70s I used to live in Italy. And when difficulties arose, the old people used to say patienza, and they say it like soothing prayer music, not some of a, oh, be patient, Patience, and with that last you exhale and you slow down and breathe. Pazienza. Having gone through two world wars and hunger and poverty, the old people in Italy understood how little control we actually have. Pazienza. Can we bear this difficult passage knowing it's all impermanent? Ajan Chab, many of you know about him the teacher of Jack Confield and many other Western teachers, Forrest Monk, who died in the 90s. He said, patient endurance is a supreme practice for freeing the heart from unwholesome states. And when people came and complained, Atencha often asked, can you endure it? And This was not said as some kind of macho challenge, but more as a way of pointing to the fact that the way beyond suffering is neither to run away from it, wallow in it, or even grit one's teeth and get through on will alone. No, the encouragement of patient endurance is to hold steady in the midst of difficulty, to truly apprehend and digest the experience of dukkha, suffering, to understand its cause and let it go. That was from a book, Food for the Heart, and that part was written by Ajahn Amaro. The word patience comes from the Latin patiens, and it's a present participle of pati, to endure, to bear. Can you then hold steady to truly understand the nature of our suffering and let it go? Achancha asked. And dictionary goes on to say, It's an ability to suppress restlessness or annoyance. Being able to bear provocation, misfortune, or pain without complaint, without loss of temper, irritation, or the like. And there are other meanings that I like. Quiet, steady, perseverance. Even temperate care, diligence. Patience helps us to understand that it's not through control that we face our difficulties and challenge. Even though our mind constantly grasps for control, It's about letting go of the outcome. Letting go of our preconceived notion of how things are supposed to be. Instead of trying to control the outcome, we listen to what is. We pay tender attention to what is the process that's unfolding in us, around us. Why do I keep on inserting inserting tender, tender patience? Because I think it's not enough to just observe what is. We all have taken on the human form and with it comes the inevitable vulnerability of our humanity. Who here does not know pain? loneliness, shame, unbearable losses. Who here can escape death? This body is subject to suffering, sickness, old age, and death. Life is already so hard. How can we be but be kind? to ourselves, to one another. I think Thich Nhat Hanh said that. <coughs> we care about our suffering. We care about becoming free. But then tenderness is a quality of care that arises out of being in touch with our humanity and our interconnectedness and we need to bring that also as we practice bearing witness as we practice mindfulness as I mentioned earlier curiosity is another quality that supports patience judgment closes the doors and windows of our heart It contracts our body in defense as if the world is a dangerous place. Curiosity is that leaning in, that relaxing into what's not supposed to be happening, into that that unknown, into that unclear, or sometimes (laughs) into that seeming chaos, and curiosity is the heart of the inquiry process and really getting to understand who we truly are. And it's the best antidote to judgment. It's like being curious about the landscape while you are driving on a detour. Instead of getting through it as fast as you can because it's not supposed to be there you can enjoy the journey. Until you practice the inquiry process, the curiosity doesn't come easily at first, for some of us, for me, some of the time, especially around seemingly unpleasant things. Because we want to run, it's hard to think about leaning in. So, first we want to be willing to at least slow down. It's like slowing down a dramatic film or movie until you see just one frame. And when the film slows down to one frame, you are no longer lost in the story of the movie and you begin to pay attention to different things that are there. Relax into what's not supposed to happen. To relax into anything calls for some faith, some trust in our inherent goodness. I remember the childhood game of falling backwards when other people are supposed to catch you. I don't know. I I think many of you play that. (laughs) catch you before you hit the ground. Um, And usually there's um, not only just other kids, but usually there's a teacher, a parent, older sibling, uncle, aunt, was there, along with your friends or your, your younger siblings. It takes faith that something larger and stronger will catch you when you relax and let go. Leaning into the unknown, falling backwards. This is a poem by Philip Booth that I adapted a little bit for this talk. And it's called First Lesson. Lie back, daughter. Let your head be tipped back in the cup of my hand. Gently, and I will hold you. Spread your arms wide, lie out on the stream, and look high at the gulls. A dead man's float is face down. You will dive and swim soon enough where this tidewater ebbs to the sea. Daughter, believe me, when you tire on the long thrush to your island, lie up and survive. As you float now, where I held you and let go. Remember when fear cramps your heart, what I told you. Lie gently and wide. The light year stars lie back and the sea will hold you. There's beauty and grace in trusting the unknown by relaxing into it. Paradoxically, what can be known and what can not be known becomes clear. When we are afraid of the unknown, we so often don't realize that we are afraid because the fear makes up stories about what what the unknown is supposed to look like. Have you ever noticed that? When we are afraid of an unknown, we are not really afraid of the unknown. We are afraid of the stories that fear tells you about it. The fear cheats on the unknown and makes it known. But what the fear makes known is never true. Have you noticed that fear always tells you scary stories? So not knowing means not believing in the stories and being willing to be patient and open to what will unfold. It really calls on patience to keep on noticing the grasping for stories. Remember it's wired in us that tendency and keep on returning to that silent, wide open space of not knowing. To understand that stories are just stories, the construct of the mind. Like the lungs function to breathe, eyes to see, the mind's function is to make meaning, to make stories. The brain, the mind is doing just what it's supposed to be. When we understand the stories for what they are, Then there is a space between you and your fear. That part of you that can witness fear is the part that is not touched by fear. There is fear, then there is the awareness of fear. That awareness is not of fear. Well sometimes these stories do persist, especially our habitual stories and we need to bear witness to it over and over with tender patience and eventually we develop an understanding that the stories are not who we are. They do not tell the story of who we are. The truth of who we are cannot cannot be found in our minds, in our mind stories. For who we are is much too grand and mysterious for the mind to comprehend. Relax into what's not supposed to happen. We see this in the story of world-famous violinist, Isaac Perlman, and some of you may have heard this story before. He had a polio as a child. He's an Israeli violinist. And he had a a, a brace on each of his legs, and he walked with a cane very slowly and steadily. And even when he went on uh, concert performances, he had to go on the stage like that. So, and this is from Houston Chronicle. By now, the audience is used to this ritual of him walking across the stage. They sit quietly while he makes his way across the stage to his chair. They remain reverently silent while he undoes the clasps on his legs. They wait until he's ready to play. But this time something went wrong. Just as he finished the first few bars, one of the strings on his violin broke. You could hear it snap. It went off like a gunfire across the room. There was no mistaking what that sound meant. And there was no mistaking what he had to do. People who were there that night thought to themselves, we figured that he would have to get up, put on the clasps clasps again, pick up the crutches, and limp his way off stage to either find another violin or else find another string for this one. But he didn't. Instead, he waited a moment, closed his eyes, and signal the conductor to begin again. The orchestra began and he played from where he had left off. And he played with such passion and such power and such purity as they had never heard before. Now of course anyone knows that it is impossible to play a symphonic work with just three strings I know that, and you know that, but that night Isaac Perlman refused to know that. You could see him modulating, changing, recomposing the piece in his head. At one point it sounded like he was detuning the strings to get new sounds from them that they had never made before. When he finished, there was an awesome silence in the room. And then people rose and cheered. There was an extraordinary outburst of applause from every corner of the auditorium. We were all on our feet, screaming and cheering, doing everything we could to show how much we appreciated what he had done. And Isaac Perlman smiled, wiped the sweat from his brow, raised his bow to quiet us, and then he said, not boastfully, but in a quiet, pensive, reverent tone. You know, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. Pablo Picasso also said, if you can't find red, use blue. (laughs) so what music can we make with what we have what life delivered to us what beautiful things we can make in blue the problem is never the situation or the circumstance but how we relate to it in tenderness and patience a path becomes known in tenderness and patience a path becomes whole may you be blessed with opportunities to practice tender patience today and thank you for your patience to listen to me today (laughs) so uh, we have a few minutes for comments, questions Yeah, it's I don't know if it's a published poem. Um it is okay. Um, the author is Philip Booth and the title is first uh, first lesson. And and I adopted it because I changed it to daughter from son. <laughs> Thanks. So grateful for your talk this morning um, and the reminders. It's so beautiful. I was back to work this week and it kind of fell into my, so my old habits, you know, of the judging mind. And just today, with your breathing meditation and then your dharma talk, just that place of awareness, being able to see that and then find our way back home to our goodness. Just, just so. And it was lovely to hear part two
1: after hearing the main talk. Thank
0: you. Well, this wasn't the part two, <laughs> but kind of <better> it is. <laughs> Actually, patience was on my list, but the patience from the lens in in spring, uh, it was it called a, for a really different kind of patience to be so much with death and dying. In a way I wasn't thinking about being patient. And it's really this everyday life. You know, I I remember I, I, I let go of the watch, I let go of the conventional time. And I mean just so many things I wasn't in some ways not touching the ground. And I remember the day I put on my watch and I said, Wow, I can't can I be with this thing? And 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 so what? What I think one of the things that happened was I've taken in the conventional sense of time, and and more like having to pay attention to the everyday living, and it really calls for a lot of patience. It's really hard, you know. It's that's the the. the the laundry after the ecstasy, you know, that's <laughs> why we have to it's just not very sexy, you know. But there's a lot of beauty and grace in that too. you think it was difficult for you to do part two because you weren't in the death and dying piece anymore but you were in the living piece? You talk about putting your watch on and so maybe it was difficult to find part two of death and dying when the morning process has changed in the world, and now you're on to the living process? Yeah, you know, I asked myself that. Um, it, it's not so much I'm not there as... because I, I feel so deeply the insight about impermanence. I, I think every day, but I think I integrate a more conventional sense of time. Back then, I didn't have sense of time. I didn't have a sense of past. I didn't have a sense of future. Future just dropped out, and and so in a way, six months to live, like six months felt like oh, far ahead. And now I'm thinking like ten years, you know. So <laughs> and you know, and then and then I remind myself that ten years is is a is is not real. The time is a construct of mine, too. It's just a kind of arbitrarily way of organizing my sense of self and life that helps me to live today. But in the end, it's I still have just this moment. That hasn't changed since six months ago, three months ago. So it's, it's like I'm holding both more now. Good question, yeah. OK, so Jamie, where's Jamie? OK, Jamie's going to um, lead us in singing. Do you know what page? Um, the last page. So I'll sing the first line, and then we'll start after I count for three, we'll is, I have arrived. I have arrived. One, two, three. I have arrived. I am home. on this side of the room could do the echo part. That would be great. <laughs> then we'll start with the she Buddha. Oh. There's old Buddha, okay. sitting okay. under the Bodhi tree, Bodhi, tree. Bodhi tree. She's so happy, just as happy as she can be. She, she can, be. can be. Sitting like the yeah. one on the floor, Back to school, just float on high. There's old Buddha sitting old under man. the holy tree, holy tree. He